The way to understand China, I think, is to, you know, look at that history since 1820. So China in 1820, again, was accounted for like one third of the global economy. And, you know, the Chinese word for China is Zhengguo, which means middle country. So in the Chinese eyes, they're like, well, for thousands of years, we were the number one economy in the world. The Strive for More podcast will resonate with those that strive for more in any aspect of their lives. Follow along on One Man's Journey on the path to a meaningful life through long-form interviews with everyone from successful entrepreneurs, artists, physicians, leading scientists, social media influencers, and professional athletes. This episode of the Strive for More podcast is brought to you by the Strive Accelerator, which is a weekly mastermind group for entrepreneurs. So if you're not seeing the success you want, or you're searching for a community of like-minded business owners, then send an email to jared at striveaccelerator.ca to book a call and learn more. Our next guest worked as a specialist in Asian trade and finance at the Congressional Research Service, a federal agency that works exclusively for the U.S. Congress for over three decades. He was the leading specialist on China's economic development and U.S.-China trade relations, producing numerous reports on these topics and providing extensive assistance to members of Congress in developing legislation and holding hearings on China. He also served as an adjunct professor for Syracuse University's Maxwell School in Public Policy. Please welcome to the show, Wayne M. Morrison. Well, Wayne, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Jared. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to this conversation. I want to start off with you and your interest in China. Where did that come from? That's a great question. So uh, I joined uh, the Congressional Research Service at the Library of Congress uh, in 1983. And when I first got there, I was in the uh, tax section. Five years later, they transferred me to the trade section because trade was becoming a really hot topic. And then I remember my new boss coming up to me and saying, "Uh, are you interested in working on China? Because nobody else is interested in working on it. So I said, sure, I'll do it. Not knowing, you know, how big China would become. (laughs) But 1988, China was really not a big deal at all. Then, of course, the next year was the Tiananmen Square massacre. And then congressional focus on China just went from zero to like a million. First, it was obviously on the human rights aspects. But then later, as China's economy began to really take off, especially in the 90s, uh, China became like, in terms of trade, like the biggest issue for Congress there, the trade issues and and the uh, nature of China's economy. So that by the time I think I left CRS, uh, China was by far the number one country of, uh, of concern to the U.S. Congress. And as China uh, grew, the complexity of the issues really took off as well. So uh, by the time I left, it was very maddening to work on China. It was like a seven days a week kind of job. But it was also very interesting, too. I mean, to see a country go from very poor to one that that has become much more uh, affluent uh, and to see that happen. uh, I don't think any country in the history of the world has uh, grown as as fast as China has. It's become so developed in such a short time. So it's, it's quite amazing to see this uh, economic miracle that happened in China. No other country can really match it. Well, I can't imagine a better place or better country to examine over the last 40 years. That's just a fascinating turn of luck. Absolutely. Do you buy lottery tickets? <laughs> no. <laughs> Not at all. I, I want to turn to China itself. And I think many of us at least have this 
base level of understanding around, you know, what has China done over the last 40 years and, and that Chinese miracle. Um, we know, I think that China was very communist in the 50s, 60s, 70s under Mao. And then there was this capitalist turn under Deng Xiaoping. Do we know why Deng started to open up and become more capitalist? Absolutely. So bear in mind that, uh, so the Chinese uh, Communist uh, Party, uh, after, a, uh, after a long civil war with a nationalist government, the KMT, which fled to Taiwan, and then before that, uh, World War II. China was 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 really devastated uh, economically. Then under uh, Mao, um, China uh, basically uh, adopted the Soviet Union's uh, economic model. So basically, it was state driven, state run. The Chinese thinking was we can, in a very quick time, use government resources to build steel mills, to put move people from small farms to collective farms, etc. And so we could help. They thought that they could help repair China in a very, very quick way. But that didn't quite happen. And partly it's because China's economic um, system was more driven by ideology than it was economic reality. And so uh, Deng Xiaoping was actually someone who advocated economic reforms for many years in China. Actually, he'd been punished for it, too. He'd been sent down to the countryside. Luckily for him, he wasn't killed, as many were. Uh, because he was a, uh, a hero during uh, World War II and during the uh, Civil War. So he was spared. Now, when Chairman Mao died in 1976, he rose to power. And one day, uh, one of his officials said to him, better to be uh, poor under socialism than rich under capitalism. And, and Deng said, are you serious? He said, socialism is not poverty. And then he came up with a very radical saying, which was black cat, white cat, what does it matter as long as the cat catches mice? So to try to understand what started the Chinese economic miracle, it was common sense. It was being pragmatic. So in other words, let's forget about, you know, Mao's little red book and all this uh, communist ideology. It's, that's all well and good. But let's think about ways that we can actually grow the economy. Because when the Chinese, when the government, when the uh, Chinese Communist Party took over, and implemented their policies, uh, China's economy did rise, but not by a lot. Very, very slow. Um, their their uh, per capita GDP doubled between 1950 and uh, 1978, right before the reforms. So they doubled, but that's, that's a long time to double the economy. And there were a couple of periods, such as the Great Leap Forward and Cultural Revolution, that were absolutely disastrous to the Chinese economy. So Deng was really looking for something that would make China's economy grow to basically, you know, there were hundreds of millions of people in poverty in China. So imagine on the cusp of their reform period, uh, the U.S. economy was 10 times greater than that of China. So China was a large economy because it had a lot of people, but it was a very, very, very poor country. So Deng was looking for ways to jumpstart the economy in a very pragmatic way. It didn't mean to abandon socialism. It just meant, you know, black cat, white cat, what does it matter? So in other words, if socialist policies work, fine. If capitalist policies work, fine. But let's do what we need to do to grow the economy. So very pragmatic. How has that history, you know, in the 20th century, but also beyond for China, how has that shaped where they are now? Um, 
the thing is, uh, like I said, I don't think any country has uh, grown so rapidly economically than China. Just look at it this way. Since reforms began in 1978, 800 million people have been raised from uh, from uh, poverty in China. That, that, that's like one of the greatest miracles in history. Um, the thing to understand, though, is this. We, we tend to get really like wowed by China's economic miracle. But really, it's sort of like China decided to uh, be pragmatic and invoke common sense. Just a couple of things, for example. Uh, under Mao, very little in the way in foreign investment was allowed in China, other than by Soviet bloc countries. No Western investment in China. Um, in terms of farmers, most farmers were uh, driven off their land, their private farmers, and put on these huge collectives. Government told them what to grow, and then the government would take most of the produce. And uh, in terms of factories, the Chinese government controlled and owned most of the factories. They had these production plans. How much of these this company going to produce, you know, how many widgets, et cetera. A lot of that stuff could never be sold outside of China. So there was no incentives for workers, no incentives for companies. So all these policies w- were just very, very uh, uh, poor in terms of what they produced. Now, all that, now when Dung got in there, he said, hey, let's let farmers, let's let, let's say this plot of land is yours. And you can grow on it whatever you want, and then you can go into these private markets and sell for whatever price you can get for it. How about you know people? You can start your own business. You can go out and uh, you know try to make little widgets yourself or make bikes or whatever. And it was amazing what happened because all of a sudden productivity in China took off, and it was sort of like a perfect storm of positive things in China because when. Chinese farmers could grow whatever they wanted, and they had those incentives. All of a sudden, China produced an abundance of, of crops, more than they needed. And that meant that it freed up uh, workers. Okay, So now we didn't need as many uh, farmers. At the same time, Deng said, let's open up to foreign investors. Okay, well, A lot of these foreign investors were Chinese nationals that had fled Mao. Uh, if you were middle class or above, you were persecuted. So a lot of them left. They went to Hong Kong. They went to Taiwan, the United States. A lot of them became rich. When China opened up, they went home. They went back to their home villages, invested in factories, right? China all of a sudden had this huge surplus of labor. People moved to the cities. So those are the kind of things that really helped spark that miracle. If you think what economics is, it's like attempting to use resources, limited resources in the most efficient way. And as China began to make common sense changes, these produced just miraculous results. And Knowing the fact, too, that China started from such a very, very, very low level. And let me just give you a, a little example of this. In, 19, in 1820, China's economy accounted for a one-third of global GDP. This is 1820. Okay. Because of um, foreign wars, civil wars, poor economic policies, um, et cetera, China's economy just went down into a tailspin. So it went from one-third in 1820 to accounting 4.5% of global GDP in uh, 1950. Now, one might ask, was this because, well, it was relative to other countries? No, it was a serious economic decline in China. Okay, so here's an interesting fact, though. If, uh, If you were Chinese living in 1950, your per capita GDP, okay, your living standards, 
would have been 25% lower than they would have been in 1820. Now, can you imagine saying that to anybody, that you would have been better off living in 1820? But that's how bad things (laughs) got in China. And so shows you what a low level they started at, okay? So again, it's kind of easy to uh, grow very rapidly at 10 plus percent a year if you're starting from a very, very, very low level. We know that obviously the Chinese way of doing things is so, or is different than the West's way of doing things from a social perspective, from an economic perspective. How different is it? In China, uh, what they call their economic system is a socialist market economy. So it's a sort of, again, the black cat, white cat. It's kind of a fused cat. They took the white and the black cat and fused it together. So you got a white and black cat. So in many ways, okay, so uh, when China began to uh, open up and reform, most of the economy was was uh, controlled by the government. Government set prices, controlled just about every aspect. It began to loosen those controls uh, over time. And so, for example, um, in, uh, in terms of industrial production, when reform started, uh, the government probably controlled like 80 to 90 percent of industrial production. And today it's 25 percent or 30 percent something like that. It's it's still there, okay? But not as big as it once was. You have a lot of entrepreneurs in China, you private entrepreneurs, right, who have uh, been quite successful, right? The problem has been in China, and this is to me the key, is that the, uh, the Communist Party, it, it's very happy that economic reforms allowing more capitalism uh, has created great results. But they're always kind of suspicious of capitalism, right? And they always say, well, wait a minute, we're the Communist Party. We're still supposed to have a play a huge role in what happens here. And so the government sort of like tries to hedge it, have it both ways. And so some, there are many sectors of the economy that are still state controlled, where the government is like the majority owner. The banking system is, is largely owned by the, is controlled by the government. The auto industry, uh, telecommunications, um, many service industries. And so what happens is that the government tries to sort of pick and choose what sectors could be very important to the Chinese economy and then says, okay, we're going to make them national winners. We're going to pump a lot of money in them. We're going to give them trade protection. We'll do whatever it takes. Sometimes they've been successful in that. Sometimes they've not been very successful in that. But it's a greater and greater challenge, I think, to us in the West. I'll just give you an interesting example. So the uh, Global Fortune 500, it's um, put out every year and uh, lists the top 500 uh, international companies based on revenues. For the first time in 2020, there were more Chinese companies listed than any other country, right? The U.S. was second for the first time ever. China had 124 companies listed, okay? Now, the problem is, is that uh, over three quarters of those companies are state-owned companies, right? So the thing is to understand is these are not just big companies in China. They're big companies internationally. And if you think about like a Western company trying to compete with a Chinese company that gets the backing of the state, that can get unlimited resources from the Chinese uh, banking system, that is something that is very concerning, I think, because it's not a level playing field, right? And that's that that if you wanted to point what's the biggest source of conflict between the U.S. and, and China's economic system, that's it right there. Right. Mm-hmm. 
And as China becomes more modern and is moving more and more into uh, te technology, um, that's where the, the Chinese state uh, it becomes more of a problem. Because if you're IBM, for example, okay, you can compete maybe with a Chinese company, but how do you compete with the Chinese state that is willing to, you know, put in unlimited resources into that? So that's that to me is the is the, is the number one problem that Western uh, countries face now vis-a-vis -vis the Chinese uh, economic system. Let me just add one thing: um, when China joined the WTO, World Trade Organization, in two thousand one, that was a big deal at the time because China had made a number of commitments, which many believed would transfer China to a market-based economy uh, within about 15 years. And even though China did implement a lot of the reforms and opened up markets and uh, U.S. companies and other foreign companies done quite well in China, uh, the fact that China never did that, it did not complete its uh, transformation. And in some ways, it actually started to go backwards. And again, part of the problem is in, in Beijing, the, the Communist Party said, we got to have a role in, in what's going on in our country. And we feel that we're much better at doing it than perhaps letting the private sector do it. Right. And the problem is sort of is this. The Chinese kind of realized, like, well, look at these Western companies like Apple, so successful. Uh, and they're saying, like, yeah, that's what we want. But we don't want to wait. We don't want to wait. We want to we want to be able to get this sort of technology now. So the only way we can do it is use the government to focus resources in that. And again, whether a foreign government can create winners in the marketplace is problematic. Sometimes it can, sometimes it can't, but it creates huge problems for companies that are trying to compete you know, in terms of a, a market-based system. Those two ideologies, the ideology of the West, which is very individualistic, market-based, the best man or woman win versus the East China's of Confucianism, right? Of collectivism, of, um, of government direction of the future. Are those competing? Is there the possibility that both of those ideologies can coexist or is there, is it just that one eventually defeats the other? Well, um, I think that, um, in terms of ideology, I'm not quite sure to what extent um, the Communist Party ideology and the Confucius ideology, how much that they you know intertwine. But um, the thing is, in China, um, what, one major difference that I'll say is that w when you go to do business there, uh, it's all about relationships, building relationships. When you're going to do business with somebody, you want to get to know them. You want to get to know their family. You're expected to hang out with them like on weekends, <laughs> go up wow. for karaoke with them. In the West, <laughs> uh, we do things by signing a contract, right? An enforceable contract. It's, it's done on rule of law. Now, that's those are two different ways of, of, of doing things. Um, that is sort of like the sort of difference, I think, in terms of like if you want to use a sort of like the Asian a way of, of doing things there. It's all, it's, it's, it's all based on relationships, et cetera. Uh, but, you know, the problem is like, well, how much of it is based on relationship and how much of that is based on, on corruption? Because uh, I, I, when I was in China, I met with this one U.S. company 
And they said that they had hired this guy, this Chinese uh, gentleman. They hired him because he had gone to high school with a high level official in a regulatory agency. And the U.S. company needed to be able to get a business license. And they had hoped that that connection with this guy who had gone to high school with the other guy would get them that license. And I'm like, my goodness, like that's a terrible way of having to to live and do business. Um, I don't think that uh, the, the Chinese are so driven by ideology. I mean, they are in some to some extent, but their, their whole thing is they got to keep the economy going. They've got to because what. Under Mao, it was all about ideology. The, uh, that was the legitimacy of the Communist Party. You know, we're going to serve the people, even if we're all poor and starving. We're going to fight for a better China. And that was sort of what kept the Communist Party in, in, in power. And then now it's all about, you know, getting the economy to grow and keeping it going. I remember when I used to go to China in the early 1990s, and uh, you see how bad the pollution was getting and all the other problems that were developing by this uh, breakneck uh, economic policies and 10% growth. And they would say to us, all the people care about is being able to live better, have a roof over the head, eat better, you know, take care of their children and this and that. And um, I think that that, that might've been true to some extent, but now we're seeing changes in China where there's a large middle-class in China, uh, 300 million people. And the government now is sort of struggling. How do we keep the economy growing? Because China's economy has been slowing down and there is concern, uh, what will happen in the future. So the Chinese have a lot, have, have a lot of huge challenges uh, ahead of them that scares them to death. I'll just give you one example. Uh, China's working aid population. Okay. Um, it's, it, you know, we all know that China has a lot of people. So they have a lot of workers and that's what's given them a lot of, uh, their competitive edge to have a huge pool of low cost workers and especially in terms of the you know manufacturing and labor intensive products but according to the united nations between 2015 and 2050 china's working age population which is age 16 to 64 is going to drop by 200 uh, million people i mean that's unbelievable that is completely unbelievable <laughs> so they're losing that edge that edge and so they are looking for new ways to keep the economy growing, right? And so in a sense that the Chinese government is trying to do whatever it takes to keep that economy growing. And part of it is the state intervention, thinking that if we pour a lot of money into high tech now, we can boost productivity, we can help produce the industries of the future, et cetera. And again, their problem is this, they, they have this can't wait attitude, like, yeah, we'd love to have like like uh, country you know, companies like Apple, et cetera, so innovative, et cetera. But we don't want to wait 15, 20 years. We got to have it now. And uh, that creates problems for us, as I mentioned. And frankly, I'm not convinced that the Chinese can achieve their goals of rapid economic growth. I really do, because uh, at some point they're going to hit a brick, uh, a brick wall, if you ask me, if they don't open their economy more. And maybe part of what you're touching on there is that middle income trap. So it's relatively or comparatively easy to go from low income to middle income, but it's significantly harder to go from middle income to high income. And so I guess, how effective do you think China is going to be at overcoming that move from middle income to high income? 
I got good news and bad news vis uh, <laughs> China. So, um, you know, the World Bank um, makes determinations of the income levels of various countries based on per capita income. And uh, so they have ranges. So there's three main groups, low income, uh, middle income, and high income, right? The U.S. is a high income. China, of course, started as a low income country uh, when it began its reforms, and it was able to transition to a middle income. And now it's what is called a high in, uh, I'm sorry, high middle income country. So just to show you where China is right now. So according to the World Bank, this threshold for becoming a high income country is 12,000, I think it's 555, something like that. China in 2019 was at 10,400. So it's pretty close. So it's about 80% of that level. Now, considering that per capita GDP has averaged in terms of growth uh, about 8% over the past 10 years. It looks like China doesn't have a long way to go. Now, looking at projections for China's GDP growth since the pandemic has hit, et cetera, the IMF says China should grow at over 5%. In term, if China's economy could grow at least 5%, um, it's very, very likely that China can meet that threshold of 12,555. So I think they're going to make, I think they're going to go there, touch down, you know, they're going to be able to do it. It, It's quite extraordinary for a country that big, 1.4 billion people per capita, you know, Uh, and in terms of the middle income, you know, they call it the middle income trap because most countries, uh, when they're growing their economy, usually through opening up or allowing foreign investment or doing other kind of reforms, Usually they go through a very rapid economic uh, spurt. And then what happens is that that those engines of growth start to slow down. And then those countries are not able to find new sources of economic growth for whatever reason. And then they're stuck at a middle income level. That's why it's called the middle income trap. They can't make that transition. So it's very difficult to do that. There was this one study that said out of 101 um, middle income countries, in 1960, uh, only 13 became uh, high-income uh, economies uh, by 2008. So you see, it's, a, it's, a, it's an exclusive club. So China's going to make it. But let's keep in mind one thing. So here, let's look at Japan. When I started working on trade issues in the 1980s, Japan was the big deal. Everybody's worried about Japan. Japan's taking over. You know, they're, they're hurting our economy. They're a threat to us, all those kind of things. Everybody's worried. Should we be more like the Japanese in terms of your industrial policies? All that kind of stuff came up. So you look at uh, Japan's economy after World War II, you know, they were growing at almost 10 percent, just like China. Then they started slowing down to about 5 percent during the uh, uh, 1980s, uh, early 90s, and uh, sort of like where China's economic growth is now. And then what's happened over the past 20 plus years? Dead in the water. Okay, 1%. 1% growth averaging over the past 20 years. And so here's the thing, okay? China has is likely to become a high-income country, but does it can they achieve that rapid economic growth, you know, for the next 20, 30 years? I'm not sure about that because we saw what happened with Japan. Japan was becoming very advanced in terms of technology, but they were unable to for whatever reason, political reasons, to adopt the economic reforms that they needed to be able to uh, spark 
productivity growth. And as a result, you know, they've been stuck and then they, they don't have any way out, no matter what they've done. They've not been able to get out of that. I think that's very possible for China. And I say that I just don't think that they can achieve a rapid economic growth over the next 10, 20 years unless they move to really open their economy to more foreign investment, foreign competition, and to sharply reduce the role of the state in government. I'll just throw out one more example. China uh, in the 1980s said, we're going to make the auto industry a pillar industry. So they poured a lot of money in it. They told foreign companies, well, you can sell cars in China, but only if you do a joint venture with a state company, 50-50 joint venture. And so what are the results? China is the largest producer of cars in the world, largest consumer of cars in the world. But go anywhere, you know, where you're living, where I'm living, do you see one Chinese car? And the reason is no. And, and why is that? Well, it's because the Chinese uh, car company, SOE, a state-owned enterprise executive, is thinking like, hey, it costs a billion dollars to come up with a new brand. You know, why should I do that? Because I've got these foreign companies here and I'm making great profits, you know, there. So I'm just going to sit back and enjoy that. And I think this is a serious problem for a lot of Chinese companies. As long as they get the government protecting them and subsidizing them, you know, there's something like 40 or 50 auto companies in China. Every local government wants its own company. And some companies just produce like a few thousand cars a year. It's very inefficient. And what happens when they go bankrupt? They don't go bankrupt. That's the answer because the local governments will continue to uh, provide them with subsidies and financial help because they don't want to deal with the unhappy, unemployed people. So to me, this is a sort of a serious problem that China is going to face if it doesn't reform its economy and move toward a market economy. Do you think some of those reforms are currently going on now, opening up to foreign investment, letting some of those state-owned enterprises fail? There's been some um, reforms in China, but here's the thing. So um, when President Xi became head of China, he uh, began to promise that uh, that that markets would 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 uh, play just a huge role in the allocation of resources. I remember when he said it was a big deal. The Chinese press saying, "Oh, this is the this is the greatest statement since White Cat, Black Cat by Deng Xiaoping." And so there was this great anticipation that uh, that China would begin to do that. And but it just didn't happen. It just didn't happen. And I think part of the reason was is that. A lot of these state-owned enterprises, they're huge. They employ a lot of people. They have a lot of political power. And again, because of the government's uh, distrust of private, the private markets, uh, they want to be able to control that as much as possible. And so I think that President Xi, you know, he didn't say those things of, because he thought later on, I, I'll just renege on it. I think what happened was he made these uh, statements and then later on, he went, you know, even though he's uh, he's now president for life, he still has to deal with, um, you know, people within the Politburo. And I think he ran into a lot of resistance within there to really open the economy. So the reforms that we have seen since President Xi got in have been relatively minor. And I think that um, uh, that if you look at some of the business climate surveys for foreign companies, it hasn't been a pretty picture, Right. A lot of them are finding that uh, that the Chinese government gives preferences not only to state-owned enterprises now, 
but also to uh, private Chinese companies. Uh, the Chinese government uh, allegedly uh, pressures uh, foreign companies to uh, transfer technology. Like we're a huge market in China, you want to do business here, you got to share technology, or maybe, or either that, or they'll just steal it, right? So that's a huge problem. And um, I would say that you know the U.S. and China have been engaged in a trade war since President Trump got in, and that has really, really hurt. I think the uh, efforts to uh, get China to reform. And I just want to highlight one thing that I think is very important. So um, under President uh, Barack Obama, the United States uh, signed the Trans-Pacific Partnership. So with 11 other economies in the Asia-Pacific region, that to me was a very big deal because it was considered to be a very high standard agreement, um, really lower tariffs, but also deal with a lot of... uh, you know, things like intellectual property, uh, things like state-owned enterprises. And I remember at that time when it was when that was being negotiated, the Chinese government was very concerned. When I went to China, uh, shortly that was signed, uh, meeting with think tanks, they were all worried about that, what that would mean for China. You know, China would be excluded. It's going to hurt their, hurt their economy. And they were very angry about it, et cetera. And I thought that was a very clever strategy for the United States because basically the TPP agreement was really meant for China. Like, yeah, we wanted that a great trade agreement, a free trade agreement, but what we really wanted was to induce China to get in. Because if we did, then China would have made been required to make a lot of economic reforms. But then when President Trump became president, first thing he did, first thing he did, January 2017, he pulled the US out of the TPP. And that was a huge amount of leverage that we had with the Chinese. All of a sudden that was gone was completely gone. And that to me was a huge mistake. Uh, And because of that, we haven't really had any kind of dialogue with China in terms of economic reforms. It's just been a lot of harsh rhetoric. That's all. What impact did the Trump administration have on US-China policy? Yeah. So this is my own personal opinion. (laughs) But uh, I think that the Trump, uh, Trump administration trade policy uh, toward China, not just China, but other con- other trading partners, was a real disaster. Um, bear in mind, though, that there was a lot of frustration with China. And that's sort of like his anti-China rhetoric uh, got a lot of positive reception by both Republicans and Democrats. And it's because China had not implemented fully its, its commitments in the World Trade Organization, a lot of people felt, well, if China's subsidizing, you know, their their industry, steel industry, for example, you know, China subsidizes its steel industries, we'll let them go bankrupt. China now produces 50% of global steel, right? And, you know, over, it results in overproduction, uh, pushes down wages in other countries. So it creates a lot of frustration and anger, right, among many. So that, I definitely can agree with that. But what Trump decided to do was he decided to go after China and utilize this trade law, this ancient trade law called Section 301, and basically unilaterally imposed uh, tariffs on over $375 billion of imports from China. And of course, China retaliated. I mean, we had tariffs, increased tariffs of up to 25%. So this was a huge trade war. And it was supposed to be all about China's um, protection of intellectual property rights and cyber theft of of uh, 
of trade secrets. And those are really, really important issues. But the thing is, by going after China unilaterally and not going through the World Trade Organization, I mean, we, the United States, helped build a very strong enforcement mechanism in the WTO so that we could adjudicate, you know, disputes within the WTO, right? That was that was the United States idea. But by going against that and violating that, we violated sort of like an organization that we helped create, right? So we did that against China and it was back and forth, you know, we hit them, they hit us. But you know what? It was even worse because Rather than work with our trading partners and allies like in Canada and Mexico and all these other Europe, Japan, all these countries that had similar uh, grievances with China, what did Trump decide to do? He decided to go after all those countries, you know? He said, Oh no, we gotta renegotiate NAFTA, you know? Oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna threaten Mexico with increased tariffs if they don't uh, tighten their border, you know? The EU, oh, we're gonna increase tariffs on cars if they don't open up to import from the United States, you know? So basically, he turned almost all our trading partners. And to me, what very, got very frustrating uh, was that uh, here's China, President Xi. President Xi is now going to these international meetings. And all of a sudden, he's defending uh, free trade and globalization. So it used to be that China was the bad guy. They wore the black hat. The U.S. wore the white hat. Free trade, free trade, good for everybody. And then all of a sudden, China's the one going around saying, we're the good guy. And the U.S. is going around everybody's taking advantage of us. I just thought that was just a disaster and didn't really achieve anything in terms of, you know, reforming China. Now they did, U.S. and China did reach a trade agreement. They did in uh, 2020, but it was, to me, a horrible trade agreement because basically we gave China a laundry list. Okay, here's a list of stuff we want you to buy from us. So in broad categories, it was agriculture, uh, energy, uh, manufactured goods and services. Okay. And what we want you to do is increase purchases by a total of, of $200 billion. So here, here's the United States said, we want China to, to have less government involvement in the economy. But with this agreement, we were saying, well, we want the government to have more involvement in the economy by forcing their own companies to buy U.S. products rather than be focusing on China to actually reform their economy, reducing the role of the state in the economy. And and by the way, the whole issue was supposed to be about China's intellectual property rights protection and cyber theft. But in fact, President Trump just turned it into, I want China to reduce the trade imbalance with the United States. It's all I care about, right? And, and that to me was just poor policy indeed. Wayne, what do you think that future looks like in this next administration in terms of U.S.-China policy? Um, I was very hopeful. I guess the problem is, you know, you always want something to happen overnight. So I was very hopeful when the Biden administration uh, came in there. But uh, so far, they haven't really uh, moved on any of these issues that I wish they would. Like, for example, uh, I wish that uh, that whole trade agreement with China and all the uh, tariffs that have been posted against China, I wish that it would all go away. I really do. But I think that what we're seeing is that the new administration is sort of like, they're still trying to formulate their policy toward China, like what to do about it. And, uh, you know, uh, the new uh, USTR, Catherine Tai, I know her. She's a really uh, smart, um, smart person. I think she'll do a great job. But like when she had her uh, hearing, uh, 
when she when they had the hearings on her nomination and they asked her about the TPP and she said, well, we got no plans to get into the TPP. And let me point out that after the U.S. pulled out of the TPP, the remaining 11 countries went ahead and signed an agreement without us, right? And they always wanted us to join it. But uh, the Biden administration said they're not doing it. I guess a lot of it has to do with the state of the U.S. economy, you know, plus the fact that anything that they say or do, they get attacked for being, quote, weak on China, right? And this this is the thing that really concerns me right now, politics in China. It's very, very anti-China. Um, when I was working at CRS, um, you would see in terms of introduced bills in Congress, maybe three or four bills regarding China, you know. Now you're seeing we're seeing dozens and dozens of dozens of bills. And and some of them, some of them address legitimate issues and concerns like market access and IPR, but some of them are things that are obviously built, uh, obviously uh, being introduced to enrage China. And I think that there's no benefit doing it. For example, there was a bill in the last Congress to recognize Tibet as an independent country. There's a bill uh, introduced in this Congress that would authorize the president to uh, fight China if they invaded Taiwan. I mean, things like that, like these are sort of things that, that the Chinese are extremely sensitive about. And uh, it just makes no sense to try to provoke the Chinese with this sort of insulting, you know, legislation. There has to be an, an engagement with China. And we really need to do it. I mean, we're kind of running out of time because China now is such a huge economic power. and um, it relies less on the United States now because, you know, trade was sharply reduced because of the trade war tariffs, et cetera. And uh, the thing that is concerning me the most is, so years ago, the Chinese were looking at the uh, Western uh, economies, such as the United States, as the model that they hoped that they could achieve. And now they're like, well, forget the United States. We're going to have our own model. And not only is it good for us, we're going to peddle it around the world. Yeah, it's great to have a economy like us, you know, where we have a lot of uh, state uh, involvement and, you know, you look at our record of uh, rapid economic growth and look at the U.S. model, you know, the economy's been bad, it's not really doing too well, et cetera, you know. And so we've got to get back on that high road of supporting trade, free trade, not using unilateralism, um, working with our allies on major issues, especially with China, you know, on their on their trade thing. Um, but also, we've got to be the proponent of free trade. We've got to be supporting the World Trade Organizations, et cetera. There's a lot, a lot to be done there. And the thing is, you know, there's got to be consensus in Congress. You know, there's got to be, you know, in terms of what we're going to do. We can't have people just attack Biden all the time, saying he's weak on China, et cetera. We've got to have a good strategy on China, because if the Chinese see us divided like this, they're never going to listen to us, what we say. So we've got to be united in the United States among ourselves and among our allies. There's a lot of evidence to suggest that China cares very much about their sphere of influence. They care, of course, about Hong Kong. They care about Taiwan. They care about the South China Sea. They care about their border with India. How expansionist do you think China will be over the coming decade, if at all? The way to understand China, I think, is to, you know, look at that history since 1820. So, China in 1820, again, was accounted for like one third of the global economy. And, you know, the Chinese word for China is Zhengguo, which means middle country. So in the Chinese eyes, they're like, well, for thousands of years, we were the number one 
economy in the world, right? And then, but what happened was we went through a very bad dry spell, right? You know, we were invaded, um, you know, foreigners took advantage of us. You know, the British took Hong Kong during the Opium Wars, which was an attempt by the British to force the Chinese to accept opium in a payment for goods. And when the Chinese tried to prevent that, the British invaded twice. You know, that's how they took Hong Kong. So the Chinese, they have this like very like this period of time that they see is a very hurtful time. You know, it was the hundred years of humiliation. And so the Chinese believe that they, they say they want to get back to where they were, you know, um, President Xi calls it, you know, rejuvenation of the nation. Right. And what does that mean? Like we were once the most powerful country on earth and that's where we want to be. That's where we should be. Right. So they have that based on their own um, historical uh, background. And again, if you look at Taiwan, all right, well, Taiwan was originally taken from the Chinese in the 1890s. So they took it, they occupied it until the end of World War II. That's a huge sensitive issue, right? Then when the, uh, the, the nationalist government fled mainland China and went there and the U.S. helped to defend, you know, them, and then during the Cold War and everything, Eventually, we switched recognition of China from the that nationalist government to the communist uh, to the um, PRC, uh, and then uh, uh, the, the Chinese want that back. I mean, they say this is part of our national sovereignty. This is a line that cannot be you know crossed, et cetera. And with Hong Kong, the Opium Wars, right? All that humiliation that would happen; those are very sensitive things. Now, I don't know whether it's really sensitive or it's just something that the government instills and. You from the day you're born in China, like we got to get back. You know, we were treated so badly. We got to work. We got to fight this, et cetera. So now we're seeing China very active in the South China Seas, which they say is theirs, right? Based on some obscure map, right? From ancient times, et cetera. And uh, a lot of resources in the South China Seas, uh, you know, things like petroleum and fish and all sorts of things. And it's, there's huge shipping lanes. So that's obviously an area of conflict. And uh, so the Chinese are now, I would say that this, the Chinese uh, used to be someone that sort of like, in terms of economic uh, policy and uh, leadership, they were sort of like, with the United States, they would say, well, we're going to get in the car with you, but we want to ride in the front with you. We want to be treated like an equal, but we always want you to drive. And then so the Chinese were okay with that, but ever since we've sort of had this uh, trade war with China and, and growing conflict with China, et cetera, the Chinese are sort of going back to where they used to think. So the way they used to think is the Western countries are out to get us. They're out to undermine us. We can't trust them, et cetera. We got to resist them. And then every administration after World War II, once the PRC was in there, it was like, we're not out to get you. You know, when China began to open up reform, like, we just want you to be a responsible uh, stakeholder. You know, we want you to uh, play by the rules and rules-based, you know, international order. This is good for everybody. And then, but now the Chinese have gone from like happy and contented to be in the driver's seat. Now they want to be in the, in the, in the driver's seat, They'll pass from passenger to driver. And they're like, okay, well, we don't really want to adapt to the uh, Western order anymore. We believe there's a Chinese order. And um, so they think that that, that um, they actually can uh, influence other countries to adopt 
their, their economic system and their political system to some extent, right? So that's a huge challenge too for the for the Western powers. I mean, I hear a lot about the Chinese holding of debt and how that's an issue. So specifically owning a lot of U.S. treasuries, which is debt that the U.S. government sells. So right. how should we think of that? Well, that's a very great question. And I used to get a lot of questions about that when I was serious, believe it or not. It was a hot button issue. Um, so the Chinese uh, are the second largest holder of largest foreign holder of U.S. Treasury securities. Treasury securities are used to uh, pay down the U.S. budget deficit. You know, U.S. Uh, deficit is high. We've been running high deficits for years and years and years. And if we didn't have uh, investors, including foreign investors, to buy those treasury securities, then uh, interest rates would go up. It would, you know, it would be a big problem. But we've been very lucky because foreigners are more than willing to uh, buy uh, U.S. treasuries, be, you know, because they're stable, you know, because they're easily sold, et cetera. And uh, so in China, I mean, the, the reason why the Chinese have have uh, gotten a lot of, of treasury securities is, A, uh, they have a they have large annual trade surpluses. OK, so they have uh, extra extra dollars. Right. What are you going to do? Like if you ever go on a foreign trip, you come back with all these euros. What are you going to do with them? You know, you just can't put them under your mattress. Earning no interest, so the Chinese are like, okay, we'll put them in U.S. Treasuries. They're safe, secure, etc. And also because uh, China is like one of the largest uh, sources of, of foreign direct investment, right? And so a lot of you go to China, you bring you bring dollars to invest, etc. And then they have so they have all that money. So there's always been this concern that wow, China controls so much of our debt. You know, does that mean they have leverage over the United States? And interesting enough. That concern in Congress got so great that uh, an amendment was added to a bill to ask the Department of Defense to analyze that issue. Because from time to time, you would see things in China media like, well, if the U.S. keeps selling uh, weapons to Taiwan, we could just dump their debt on private on the, on the marketplace. It would like throw the U.S. into a crisis, et cetera. We, we can do all that. And that got people nervous. And so interesting, the uh, the, the uh, De- Defense Department actually transferred that to the Treasury Department because they didn't know what to say or doing that. And Treasury said, look, the thing is, if China tried to do that, um, it would be disastrous for everybody. Because first of all, if it hurt the economy, it would hurt the Chinese economy. It would also hurt the global economy because it pushed down the value of the dollar. The dollar is still king in foreign exchange markets, et cetera. It wouldn't ever help the Chinese. It would be, a, it would be in a sense, uh, mutual assured destruction. If they hurt our economy, they would hurt their economy as well. So, and the other thing to think about is this. Uh, do people really understand what it means when China buys uh, U.S. treasuries? Essentially, uh, if we didn't have them buying that, we would have to find other ways to finance our own uh, our own debt, right? So who caused that debt? It wasn't the Chinese, it was us. So in a sense that uh, the Chinese are taking uh, the money that we spent buying their products and reinvesting in U.S. treasuries, right? Because they don't really have any other choice to do that. So it's really not any sort of like, you know, crazy, you know, conspiracy that the Chinese are doing that so they can get control of the United States. It's sort of like, it's a mutual thing. Like we depend on them and they depend on us. And it's not a, it's not really a weapon that they would likely use. They could do it, right? If they got so angry, et cetera. But I really doubt that they would because 
It would hurt their own economy, and it would cause anger around the world. Like, why are you destabilizing the global economy? You know, why are you doing that? So China has nothing to 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 gain from that at all. If we look to the end of this decade, do you think that the Chinese markets are more open or less open? When I started working on China in the in uh, early in the nineteen eighties, uh, China was a very closed economy, very closed market, and I would say that yes. It is significantly more open. It really is because when China got into the WTO, it reduced tariffs and it reduced restrictions on foreign investment. So you look at the data for the United States, China is the third largest export market. So it's 124 billion, something like that. But more interesting in terms of um, foreign investment, U.S. companies uh, invested in China, majority owned companies in China, um, their sales uh, in 2018 nearly $400 billion. So U.S. companies and other foreign companies do quite well in China. So China is definitely much more open um, and with a, um, a large and growing middle class. I mean, China's middle class is about the size of the U.S. population. Huge, gigantic, right? And uh, so for sure, it is far more open. But is it open to the level that it should be or what? The United States expected it to be when China joined the WTO. It's not. And and the reason, again, is because of the extensive subsidies and help that Chinese companies get. And I just want to point out one thing. These policies don't just hurt U.S. companies or foreign companies. They actually hurt uh, uh, private entrepreneurs in China because uh Private entrepreneurs cannot compete against a state-owned company that's getting financed from the central government, right? So companies that are getting all these preferences, they benefit, and people in China, you know, who would love to be able to have a business in those industries can't do it. Like in China, almost the entire oil industry is controlled by the state. There's no really private oil companies in China. Same thing with the banking system. And think about it. The banking system controlled by the government. So I'm a state-owned company. I go to the bank saying, hey, the government has made my industry top priority. So how hard do you think it is for them to get a loan as opposed to somebody that goes in? I have this great idea to start this uh, family company. You know, we're going we're gonna, to, you know, we have a new app and this and that. Uh, they're not likely to, to get the same terms as a uh, state-owned company. So this kind of thing that goes on in China is bad for the, bad for the Chinese as well. Um, so China could open up a lot more. It really could. And again, here's the thing to try to understand. So if we've tried to understand the Chinese economy since it began to open up in a sense that, uh, I'm going to just use the iPhone. The iPhone really explains everything in terms of the global economy in, in with China. Okay. So we import these things. Where do they come from? Well, they're assembled in China, right? Assembled in China. But they're innovated in the United States, right? So during the time of Trump, he said, well, why can't you make those iPhones in the United States create jobs in this net? But you see, that's not how Apple became uh, such a successful company. It became successful because it was, uh, in a sense, contracting with other companies to assemble iPhones in China. And actually, the companies that do that are Taiwan companies, you know, um, using parts and components that are sourced from all over the world, and those products then get sent to the United States. China doesn't know. Okay, so here you got millions of people in China assembling those phones. 
And guess what? The children of those parents who are making those iPhones, they don't want assemble iPhones. They want like office jobs. They want to be working in high technology. They want to work in a job where they, they're working five days a week and can travel and save money and buy a car, etc. This is what the Chinese want. But the but the problem is if the government is going to direct a lot of the innovation, because you see the middle income trap, okay, as we we talked about earlier. So China can no no longer it's no longer going to have a huge labor supply, which means they need a more productive workforce. And so they've got to invest in the economy in terms of, you know, R&D, which they are, because they're number two now at the United States. But also they have to have sort of a, an innovation sort of environment. And another big problem in China is that IPR protection is terrible. And it's not just for foreign companies. If I were an entrepreneur in China and uh, I made a record, I'm not going to make any money from that record because it's going to be pirated. It's going to be sold all over the place. And so unless China can develop this sort of like uh, environment that not only encourages innovation, but protects it and supports it, right? Um, I don't know how successful they're going to be. They think they can do it, again, through massive government intervention. Now, here's something to consider. This is why I'm, I'm nervous about this. This is why, like, I I see how China's economic rise is is beginning to threaten U.S. economy because the Chinese, for example, are pouring a lot of money in developing their own semiconductor industry. I mean, pouring hundreds of billions of dollars into it. It's a lot of money, right? Pouring a hundred billion dollars into it or more. And okay, so U.S. policymakers are looking at this and they're like, well, wait a minute. Then this not only threatens our semiconductor industry, but also our military, which depends on these things. So now there's talk within the administration, and this happened under uh, President Trump as well, that, well, maybe we need to start subsidizing our semiconductor industry. And so here's the problem. Like, are we really going to become like China, that we're going to have to start subsidizing, you know, becoming like China in, in order to protect you know, those industries that we consider to be that uh, important to our, our national economy and our national defense? I hope we don't go that way, because I can tell you in Congress, for every member of Congress, any major company in their district is a strategic industry that deserves subsidies and protection. If we open up that Pandora box, it, it, it to me, it's going to be very dangerous. But what's what else can we do if China goes in that path, right? Not to mention, if China is pouring all that kind of money in semiconductors, maybe the semiconductors they make, maybe they're crappy, maybe they're not so good, but they can sell them at such a cheap price that they can really hurt the bottom line for U.S. companies, right? And that can cause a lot of serious problems because if you think about it, um, technology really, technology firms are the crown jewels for the U.S. economy. It re they really are in terms of the jobs they create and the benefit to, to the overall economy. This iPhone that I have right here, uh, the benefit to me was – I didn't get any benefit that it was assembled in China, but I got huge benefits because of the, all the things that I can do with it. And then in the United States, according to Apple, 2 million jobs are generated by their activities, including 1.2 million in terms of app development. So you see that the kind of jobs that are, that, that are generated because of this sort of technology. And so here's the thing, like would the United States rather have these assembled abroad and get them back at a low price. 
but have all the innovation in the United States? Or do we want all that innovation to go to China and just have all the production made in the United States? That would not benefit us at all. And that's what really kind of concerns me. I think that's going to be one of the big stories of the coming decade is that the semiconductor industry and and the investment that China's made in that, including their investment in research into artificial intelligence, quantum computing, all of those next decade, you know, the big inventions that we're going to look forward to. And I think that brings up a bit of a paradox in the Chinese system around entrepreneurship. You know, we've seen Jack Ma, who has been, you know, the founder of Alibaba, one of the the most well-known entrepreneurs to come out of China, was kind of silenced by the government in the last six months or so. Um, That that paradox between the state investing in entrepreneurship and wanting entrepreneurs to flourish, but at the same time also trying to be more powerful than them. Do you think that paradox gets resolved over the coming decade or does that just get exacerbated? No, I mean, that's a really excellent question because um, I would say that in the West, we there's sort of a, a belief that the freedom of ideas is critical to to developing innovation. And um, there's a great concern, like in places like China, that uh, whenever you might speak out against the Chinese government, because the thing is, with the government in China, they it's like they do want their own companies to be successful. OK, and they may provide them with all sorts of assistance, but they also want to have control over them, because in the sense that like this whole thing of national rejuven- rejuvenation, like the government wants to have its hand into it. That's why, like, every major business in China has to have an office where there's a Communist Party official there. Like, a Communist Party official has to go to all the board meetings, et cetera. Now, if I'm trying to run a company, that would uh, pretty that would annoy me a lot. Like, why do they need to be part of this? And why is, like, my bottom line, why do they draw that into their whole national plan of national, you know, national development, et cetera? I think that is it is is it is quite frustrating and difficult. And I think that like considering the fact that China sends so many kids overseas to study, uh, for example, in the United States, there's over three hundred thousand Chinese students here in the United States. And why are they here? Because their parents wanted them to go to a place where people were taught to think outside the box, right? Taught told as an individual, you know, be creative, be innovative, et cetera. And the problem is when they go back to China uh, and they see some negative things going on, they all of a sudden uh, they get beat up over it. Right. And I think that that's going to be one of China's biggest challenges. Right. Because the Communist Party, they're so to me, they're oversensitive about criticism you know, even when it's fair, even when it's constructive, even when it's done to make the country a better place, you know, uh, you know, corruption is such a serious problem in China. I mean, all the time, the Chinese Communist Party says the greatest threat the Communist Party faces is corruption. And yet they're the ones who always like say, well, if we're going to fight corruption, we're the ones who are going to do it. And so when President Xi, when he implemented his, you know, policies of really clamping down on corruption and a lot of people got arrested etc well the conclusion a lot of people made in china everybody's corrupt in china and if you get arrested it's not because you're corrupt it's because somebody doesn't like you 
And since everybody's corrupt, they're going to get you on that, right? And I just do not know how that can really exist side by side with, you know, productivity and being able to be innovative. Because, see, this is different for China. You know, China's really not known to be an innovative country per se. Yeah, there is a lot of good innovation and internet companies in China, et cetera. But you look around your room, how many the products that you have were innovative in China? I mean, chances are they were innovated by a foreign company assembled in China. So China doesn't really have that edge yet in that. And to be able to be innovative, you have to be free and be creative. And, you know, and it doesn't help like you get on uh, you get on the Internet and there's an army of people monitoring what you're saying and maybe they'll like what you're doing and everything. And they may say you, you, you face arrest if you don't stop your criticism and things like that. You know, um, there was like uh, people that were, they sent around a picture comparing, I think it was uh, Winnie the Pooh and President Xi. I think it was Winnie the yes. Pooh. And uh, then all of a sudden, you know, the image of Winnie the Pooh is banned in China, you know, and things like that. I mean, I just, it might be a Western view, but I think that, there is a close connection between intellectual freedom and, you know, economic freedom and innovation. I really do. And I think that the fact that the government keeps cracking down on, on that in China it, it, it is, is difficult because I can tell you that uh, just speaking with people in China, you know, there's a lot of frustration in China because there is a, like, I'm not criticizing the fact that they have a one party system or anything. It's all about the rule of law. Everybody wants to be treated fairly. Everybody wants to, if they have an idea, they want to be able to go and invest in that idea without having to pay somebody off or face pressure from a government. They want to be able to have that kind of freedom. And to me, for the Communist Party to survive over the long run, you know, once somebody reaches middle class and their kids have been educated overseas, I mean, sort of like, you can't no longer control what information they're getting. And they see some of the things that are going on. Like, you know, in China, like a lot of people wish that they could volunteer and, and uh, some charity groups, et cetera. But even that gets restricted because the government feels threatened if these groups are doing something that is not within the control of the Communist Party, et cetera. So I, I when, think that these are two opposites that are going to cause problems. I think 2020 has been the first year where initial public offerings of stock of new companies uh, on a dollar value is actually greater in China than in the U.S. Do you think that that is a tide change for entrepreneurship in China? Or do you think that's just a one-off? Well, it's a good question because the stock market in China, <laughs> for the most part, it has always been sort of more of a, a speculative market. It's sort of like going to Las Vegas. Uh, I remember... Uh, a few years ago when China was experiencing economic difficulties. And uh, a friend of mine texted me from China and said she was very upset because she had lost a lot of money. And I said, well, how did you find out about this stock you invested in? She goes, well, everybody knows somebody who knows about this. So I was like, wow, she didn't even know what she was in, really investing in. <laughs> That's how I and invest. So, oh, good for you. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, you want to invest in China's stock, right? <laughs> so um, seeing the, the Chinese stock market, mm, I don't know it, whether, you know, in the United, you know, as you know, in the United States, uh, a lot of uh, what uh, goes in the stock market comes from pensions, et cetera. It's based on rational expectation. It's long-term investors, you know, um, 
in China, a lot of it is uh, is speculatory, and a, a lot of the stock market is limited to state-owned companies, right? So I would I would I would say this though: China's economy has recovered better than just about any country in the world since COVID. So uh, last year, China's economy grew by two point three percent, while almost every other major economy uh, declined by a significant amount. Uh, the data from China's trade. China's trade is exploding. Their trade is exploding and because other countries are recovering and everybody wants to buy Chinese products. So I think that part of this is what we're seeing because we're seeing very positive economic signs coming out of China right now. So obviously people are going to invest however they can. But that's another interesting thing because another problem in China is there's really limited areas where you can invest. Because the Chinese restrict how much money leave the country. You know, as an American citizen, I can invest in any country in the world. The market's anywhere in the world. In China, there's restrictions on that. So in China, you got three choices. One, you can put the money in a Chinese bank, which pays very low interest. Two, you can buy property, which a lot of Chinese people do, buy five or six properties. But then you go around and look at China. There's like all these like rental units and buildings that are completely unoccupied, right? And then three, you can put it in the stock market, which, again, is more like uh, like Vegas. So this is sort of like why we tend to see these kind of spikes in uh, property values in China or the stock market. And it's, to me, part of it is just because people are limited to where they put their money. And also remember in China, Chinese, uh, they save a lot of their money. They save more than anybody, like 50 percent of uh, of China's savings is equal to 50 percent of their GDP is higher than anybody uh, just about you know far more than the United States, so they do have they have a lot of money to uh, to put somewhere. You know they don't consume the way we do in the United States. They tend to save it. Yeah, I find those saving rates really fascinating as well. And yeah, I'm sure that is part of China's strength is their high savings rates. It's both a strength and a weakness because they save so much. They uh, their consumption rates are way below what countries their size do. And the U.S. is the opposite. We save so little, you know, we consume so much, and that's also bad. So if 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 we could just combine the two together, our economies would be in much better economic shape. I want to finish off by talking about China's currency. And as a percentage of global GDP, China's GDP is 15% currently of, of the global percentage. But their currency, the renminbi, is only used in about 2% of global transactions. Do you think... Over the coming decade, if we were to look out that far, do you think that the renminbi becomes a larger share of global transactions, or does it stay about the same? Well, that's a really good question. Um, the, so the, why does a country like China have uh, sort of like uh, the exchange rate policy? That it's not a free-floating currency like the dollar, the yen, the euro, right? So uh, for many years, China had a very a fixed exchange rate, and it was tied completely to the dollar. So it was 8.28 renminbi to the dollar. Okay, it was like that for years and years and years and years and years. And so it meant that the government would intervene as much as it could to maintain that. And why did it do that? It's because when China started out very poor developing, it wanted to have a stable currency. So if you were a foreigner and you're going to invest in China and you wanted to be able to return profits, well, you always knew what the exchange rate was going to be. If you have a floating exchange rate, if you're a poor developing country, the exchange rate can go all over the place, right? And so China uh, used that. 
And it was also very positive to help them develop foreign investment and, and exporting, et cetera. Uh, now the Chinese are sort of like um, had to reform their exchange rate. U.S. almost uh, took action against China uh, in terms of imposing uh, trade sanctions uh, several years ago uh, because of this fixed exchange rate. And China did reform its currency. So rather than just the dollar, it tied its currency to, uh, you know, a whole bunch of other currencies, et cetera. Two whereas now it's believed that China's currency is more or less close to the market level. And China has talked for years of becoming uh, a, you know, making the renminbi or yuan a global currency. Um, but in order to do that, countries with major currencies, uh, they need sort of like a large debt market. So China runs, runs these huge trade surpluses. So it doesn't really have a, a large debt market per se, right? The U.S. has a debt market, the largest. And Japan and the EU, they have a debt market. So technically, China would have to go from a country that ran deficits, trade deficits, in order to have that kind of um, a, a global currency. Um, so being tied to the dollar, um, for the most part, is has like the Chinese like it when the dollar uh, devalues, but they don't like it when it appreciates, and so that causes like a like they don't have control over it, et cetera. And um, and this is sort of like one of the reasons why they end up, you know, having to buy U.S. Treasury securities because they have all these these surplus dollars. So, yeah, having a market based currency and a, a global currency, the Chinese want that really badly. But they're not at this point able to make the kind of financial reforms they need to. For example, you need to be able to let average people in China be able to invest the money anywhere they want to. But they do, but, but they can control the currency within China. So if I'm, if I'm in China and let's say I, I export a billion dollars, right? I get the dollars. I'm required to turn that over to the government. I can't take that money and do something else, but I got to turn it over to the government. So that is going to create a lot of, of problems for China, et cetera. So it, it has been a big headache for China. And until they reform their financial system, you know, Chinese banks aren't really you know, they're huge in China, but you don't see really many Chinese banks other than Hong Kong banks. You really don't see them uh, globally, et cetera. So they're not at that stage yet where they're a mod they have a modern financial system. So even though they say they've been saying this for years, we want the renminbi to be a global player, blah, blah, blah. Uh, as, as long as their macroeconomic policies stay the way they are, you know, high savers and this and that, I don't think it's going to happen. Well, Wayne, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. That was an absolutely illuminating discussion on what I think is one of the most important topics that is going to shape our world over this coming decade. And uh, it's great to have an expert like you on this show. And for the listeners, if you want to learn more about Wayne, you can find him personally on LinkedIn by just searching Wayne M. Morrison. Wayne, my friend, thank you so much for thank joining you, us. Thanks for having me on your show. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please stay tuned for more stories from successful entrepreneurs, artists, influencers, and sports and medical moguls. Please know that I've got your back, and the world needs you to go out there and create, innovate, and iterate. If you like this episode, then please subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on. You can also find Strive Accelerator on Instagram at 
Strive Accelerator, and find show notes and all of our free content on our website at striveaccelerator.com. I always want to hear feedback from listeners, so please shoot me an email at jared at striveaccelerator.ca.